Amen. And it's good to be with you again as we're moving our way through 2 Samuel. The book of 2 Samuel is kind of the story of David from when he became king on. And it's exciting to read through this story. Now, today we've come to chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. If you have a Bible or or a smartphone, you can turn to it. Um, it, We get to this point, things have settled down really well for David. He's become king over all 12 of the tribes. Earlier in the book, he was only made the king of the tribe of Judah, and now he's the king over all 12 tribes. He had also conquered the area of Jerusalem, so now he had a hometown. Now he had a place. He was building a great house for himself, and it was a beautiful location that had a view of the Kidron Valley, and that was awesome. He had, we saw before, got the Ark of the Covenant, that place that was so important to their worship. And the Ark of the Covenant had now been placed inside the old tabernacle, the tent where they would worship God. It was like an early version of a temple for them. And there it was on the Temple Mount. And David was settling in. Things were going well. He had pretty much conquered the Philistines for the most part at this point. So now he's not at war. He's sitting at home. And as he sits in his cool new house, he looks out the window and sees this ugly tent. And he's like, I feel kind of guilty. My house is looking great. But God's living in a shack. God's living in a tent in my yard. Maybe he was even thinking, that makes my yard look ugly. But he's like looking at it and going, I got to do something to make a place that's appropriate for God. And so we'll pick up in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, that is, he was at home, he was settled in. He's just sitting there. And the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan, the prophet, who was also his best friend, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. He's like, Nathan, seems weird that the ark is in a tent and I'm in a great house. That doesn't seem right. Nathan understood what he was trying to say. And of course, all of the other cultures around, one of the first things they would do is build a temple to their gods. So he's like, ours has a tent. This isn't right. So Nathan said to the king, go and do all that is in your heart. I know what you're thinking. God is with you. The Lord Yahweh is with you. But that night, the Lord came to Nathan and said, you got ahead of yourself. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? He's like, you really think I need a house? In other passages, God said, heaven's my throne, earth is my footstool. You really think I dream about houses? But he goes on and says, I haven't dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but I've moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. We've done fine when all I had was a tent. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, 
Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God's like, did I ever ask for a house? Now, therefore, thus shall you say in verse 8 to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. You've come a long way. You were a little shepherd. Now you're the king of Israel. So you understand that. I did that. And I've been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. I have a permanent home for all of the people of Israel, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously. Now that's kind of a weird statement because they had their place, but this wasn't the end of oppression. So you get the idea. He's talking about the immediate future, but he's also talking about something that goes beyond that. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord, Yahweh, tells you that he will make you a house. He goes, you're going to make me a house? I'm going to make you a house. David's like, I have a house. But he said, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers after you die, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So the kingdom is going to last beyond you. Now this is partly referencing Solomon, certainly, who took over after David. But you also will see interlaced in here things that would go way beyond Solomon to the Messiah himself. So God said, he shall build a house for my name. He'll build the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So he said, somebody's going to take over after you. He's going to be your flesh and blood. And I'm going to do some amazing things for him. And he'll, he'll build the temple too if that matters to you. But he's also looking forward to the one who would rule and reign forever on this throne that's being established, and that would be Jesus himself. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Solomon's kingdom wasn't established forever. David ultimately, through what God had done and what God will do as the Bible predicts in the future, it's gonna, there's going to be a kingdom that's connected to David that's going to last forever. David, your impact will never end. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. You'd think David might be a little irritated because like, like, I just wanted to build a little temple. What's the big deal? But look at David's response. He went in and sat before the Lord. And said, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? You ever sit before the Lord? Just go somewhere and sit down and you're in his presence and go, God, I can't believe that you've got me this far. I can't believe that I am where I am 
because of all that you've done. This is a great, David's a man after God's heart because he had that sense of not just looking to the future, but looking at the past and going, I am unbelievably blessed. I can't believe that I'm here and you have done all that you have done to bring me to this point today. And yet, this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. This was not a big deal to you. And you've also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Whoa. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? No man would do what you're doing, what you're proposing. Nobody would even think of that. Now, what more can David say to you for you, Lord God? Know your servant. What an awareness. You know me. Yes, he did. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. Really, it's all he was trying to say. God, you are amazing. I'm amazed by you. For there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. God, I can't believe that something that I am a part of is going to last forever, but do that. You're just that special. You're that good. So let your name be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is the God over Israel and let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God. Your words are true. And you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. I want to do something special for God, to build him a house. God's like, I don't really care about a house. But you know, while we're talking about the future, I'm going to do something so amazing in your life and through you, and growing forth from who you are, because what you do will last eternally. It'll last forever. I will fulfill my promises to you throughout all generations. I mean, that's a big deal. And David saw it so. What he's really talking, oh, by the way, I should mention that typically with this passage, people make this case of, you know, saying that, well, God wouldn't let David build the temple Because David, it says, he had blood on his hands. He was a warrior. So he waited for a peaceful guy to build his house. Notice there's nothing in this passage about that. In the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles, nothing about that either. 
Where that story comes from is later on in 1 Chronicles, in chapter 22, I think it is, David's about to die and he's explaining to Solomon that the way he understood God's reasoning was that God was sharing with him, you have bloody hands, you're a man of war, but your son after you is going to be at peace because of what you've done and I will let him build a house. God wasn't saying having blood on your hands is derogatory. We sometimes think that, oh, because he was a warrior, that made him not qualified to build the temple. But think about it. David had blood on his hands because he killed people God told him to kill. How would God say, sorry, you've disqualified yourself because you're really good at killing people. And that's not something that's as elegant as what Solomon will do. I mean, and that term in Hebrew, blood on your hands, was something that somebody would be proud of. It's like, you went to war, and you came back, and you did what warriors do. I think it's really important that we not get the idea that somehow there's something less spiritual about people who do the dirty work. We sit here and live under a freedom that was accomplished by people who were willing not only to have their blood shed, but to shed blood themselves. And don't ever think that God goes, well, you know, what's really cool is the guy with a thousand women. He's the godly one. I mean, Solomon, he ends up following after other gods. He's 700 wives, 300 concubines. He ends up like leaving God and going into, you know, all sorts of stuff. All God was saying in that passage in chapter 22 of 1 Chronicles, I think, is, look, you're really good at fighting. And that's what you do. You're going to have a son, and he's incredibly creative and artistic. And he's a guy that can go ahead and design it. Not every warrior has to design buildings. Not everyone has to elevate themselves to, as the Peter Principle says, get promoted to your level of incompetency. You're good at something, so you get promoted until you finally find that job that you're no good at, And then there you are, the manager everyone hates, but you sure were a good salesman at one point. So I think God's just saying, there's a guy that's going to be more qualified and you can have a temple. But ultimately, I don't care about temples. But what the point that he's really making in this passage, and it's important that we not miss it, is legacy is way more important than anything temporal that anyone can accomplish. And he's saying, you are going to have a legacy Who you are and what you do is going to matter way beyond you. Temples come and go. Buildings, they fall over. They become decrepit. In fact, this temple that Solomon ended up building, it was destroyed. You know, and then it was rebuilt, destroyed again, rebuilt, destroyed again. Someday it'll be rebuilt and destroyed one more time during the tribulation period. Buildings aren't the thing. It's like, no, legacy is what matters. Now, Legacy is a word that we don't use a lot, and sometimes when we use it, we don't understand what it means. The word legacy is a Latin word that we transliterate to legacy, and originally it meant somebody who gives a message, a messenger. But then, over for the last several hundred years, legacy referred to sending a message that goes into the future, a message that goes beyond you. It's like, You have a message, and there's a way that you can disperse that message so that you're almost like Marty McFly, where you can actually go into the future and make an impact. 
Marty kind of messed things up when he did that, but, you know, <laughs> it was like, no. The, uh, the idea of a legacy is way more important than anything that's temporary. What do I have to do with what happens later? David understood that's a big deal. And really, for us, we live in an individualistic culture as Americans. Probably in America more than anywhere else in the world in all of history, we tend to be individualistic. We're like, I care about me. And yeah, my kids, until they grow up and turn on me, you know, my grandkids, until they do the same. But we're like, nobody's, nobody cares about what happens five generations from now. It's one reason why we're so like, I can't wait for the rapture, because I don't care about other people getting saved that I don't know. You know, I just want the people that I know to be okay. And so in a collectivist culture, such as David was in, and such as most of the world is in, actually, people care about their people as a whole. They don't care so much about what happens to them. They care about what happens to their people moving forward. Legacy is everything to people like that. And so to David, it was. Now, the question that I want to propose to you today is, what are you doing today that's actually going to last into the future? What do you do today that might pay dividends that last longer than you? Because if all that you do is stays here with you, then when you die, there's no point to you having even been here. But at the same time, the Bible's very clear, there are things that we can do to make a difference into the future. And I think every one of us, we've touched lives in certain ways, we've made differences in certain ways that will actually go far beyond us. When we die, somebody's going to get up there and say that, you know, we helped them. But do we intentionally decide that, you know, what's more important than buildings is legacy, is what can I do? Who can I touch who will touch others, who will make a difference for others? In what way will I leave the world as a whole moving forward until Christ returns a better place, a different place? And that's something that we should be very intentional about because we can do that. It's a choice that we make, but it doesn't happen automatically. It happens when we make the kind of choices that make this happen. Now, David, when he heard this, he was like blown away. He was thrilled. I would, I mean, how, how would you look at it if, if, if you went, God, I really would like to get a bigger house. And he goes, well, actually, you're going to die next week. But good news. Somebody else is going to buy your house and then add on to it, and it'll be great. They'll love it. You're like, who cares about that? See, David was like, that's so much better than anything that I could have even dreamed or hoped for, that I make a difference forever? Now, it wasn't just, you know, genetics. Because if you look at David's legacy, I mean, he had a bunch of wives, a bunch of kids. Most of his kids turned out to be dirtbags. You know, then he has Solomon. Solomon has countless kids. He probably named them by the Hebrew alphabet and numbers and everything because he had so many kids. Most of them we know nothing about. So if you look at the math, you go, I don't, you know, really what you passed on 
is like a fragment of what you could have, but that's the way it works. That's the way the math works. But for, for David, ultimately, the big picture is that Jesus is coming, is that the one who is the Messiah who fulfills all the promises that God had made to his people, and he's going to be connected to you. Now, it's kind of interesting to think about because he talked about Solomon, and then he talks about the one who will rule and reign forever, Jesus. Now, Jesus was a descendant of David biologically through Mary, through David's son, Nathan. But Solomon was the son of David. Solomon, through his genealogy, it comes down to Joseph. Joseph was the stepfather. He adopted Jesus. Joseph is the one who, he wasn't related to him, but he poured his life into him. He trained him, no doubt. And as Jesus was a a carpenter, in, in our version it says, but probably a mason, he would build walls and buildings and things like that. That's the way they did it. So here, Joseph is a part. His legacy is Jesus as well. And David's legacy to Jesus runs through a stepfather. So for all of us, our legacy isn't just through biology. It's more than that. It's like, who do you take care of? I was talking to a friend of mine, Curtis, who, you know, he was showing me a text message from, he has three boys, but he was showing me a text message from one of his daughters-in-law saying, you're like a father to me, and how much it meant to him. And then I know he had, he had a niece that, that lost her parents and, or they were out of her life and he kind of helped raise her and she looks at him as a father too. And I think for many of you, maybe you don't even have kids of your own, but you have an opportunity to be that, to create a legacy in someone else, to be that for them. This is not biological. This is spiritual. This is about influence, about making a difference in someone else's life. And the best way to live our lives, to have a legacy, is to be able to do as much as we can for as many as we can and to think, maybe this will matter. I, had, I talked to a guy after first service who um, he was upset and crying. And, you know, but he goes, you know, I heard you announced last week and you said, sometimes if you ask somebody to come to a church event with you, you know, around the holidays... That if they wouldn't go otherwise, if you're their friend, they might come. And he said he, there was a woman that he knew who he had invited her to come to the Thanksgiving Eve service. And she didn't go to church normally. She was from another country. And she came and she, you know, opened her heart to the Lord at that time. And she died the next day. She had stage four cancer. And he goes... I'm so glad I did that. I'm, I'm shattered. I'm crushed. But at the same time, wow, the legacy that he has in heaven because he put that little extra effort into saying, hey, why don't you come to Thanksgiving Eve service? Um, you know, she could have just said, no, I'm shopping online or whatever. But, you know, no, she came and she was able to hear the gospel and it, and it was able to resonate with her. And the next thing she knows, she wakes up in heaven. 
And that's the opportunity that we have to make that kind of a difference for people. And we never know where or when it's going to happen. But I know this. If we live our lives just self-absorbed, then we will miss opportunities to create legacy. Our goal in life should be, over and above everything else, it should be, as long as I'm here, as long as I have life, I want to make a difference in people's lives that will last beyond me. That's the only way, ultimately, that you can say your life really made sense. The point of life is not just to endure it. The point of life is to invest it. And we have a chance to create legacy. David understood this is a big deal. Now you go, well, yeah, David's legacy was Jesus, and that is pretty cool. But you would think that once you have Jesus, David doesn't even matter. The guy that created the legacy doesn't matter because of what it comes to. But think about it. Here's Jesus throughout his life. He's quoting David in several places. The most shocking of which is as Jesus is hanging on the cross, being crucified, he's in agony and pain, and he goes, this reminds me of what David said in Psalm 22, because he felt this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, why are you turning your back on me? He, David gave him words, Jesus' words. Now, David still has a legacy with us. Throughout the history of the church, people have sang songs that were adapted from the psalms that David wrote, and we still do that, certainly. But the mind-blower of all, for David, I'm sure, would be when he realizes the last page of the Bible. Jesus has one more thing to say, and as he's saying, if anybody thirsts, let him take of the water of life freely. And then he goes, by the way, you want my credentials? I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Jesus, in his final word, is saying, I'm related to David. What an amazing legacy. And what a reminder to us that we take legacy seriously, that we really try to live our lives in such a way that we impact others who can then impact others. You can't win them all. Most people that you do things for, most people that you talk to, reach out to, eh, they won't make it. But legacy is about a thread. It's about somebody getting it. It's about someone responding. And that's what's so important to recognize the opportunities are all around us. How do you build a legacy? It's not by building a building. It's not by, uh, I mean, I'm thankful for this building. I remember when we first came here and there were, it wasn't nearly this big, and our youth group met in a bus, and, and it was the classes where we made dividers, and they were crammed in everywhere. I have great memories of that, and I have, I, every time I walk in this place, I like, my heart is touched by what God has done here. But you know what? Someday this building's going to be something else. Someday, and I don't even care, if, I, if I'm 100 years old and I drive by here, and this place is a strip mall, I don't care. Because you know what? I had a chance to get to know some really special people in this building. I had a chance to share some really special truths from Scripture. I don't even care if some of them go away mad and they're involved in churches somewhere else. I'll take that. I want people to be touched in a way that they continue in their walk with the Lord. 
wherever that is. And it's not about a building. Forget the building. It doesn't matter. I, I think this time of year, people are, you know, there's like Black Friday, which starts about Tuesday. And then you have, you know, Saturday is Small Business Saturday. And Monday is Cyber Monday. And Tuesday now they've invented Giving Tuesday, where I'm like being pestered by all these ministries that are saying, this is the day where if you have any money left, you need to send it to us. And I'm like, no, man, it ain't about stuff. It's not about what you can buy. That's, that misses the point. Church isn't about buildings. In fact, if you go to Europe, you see some of the most amazing church buildings in the world. And many of them are converted into travel agencies and bed and breakfast and all sorts of other things. There aren't even churches anymore. Church isn't a building. The church is people connecting with God, touching each other's lives. And they sometimes come and go. And that's okay, but legacy stays forever. Fame is not what legacy is about. Famous people, can everybody can know them. And years later, nobody even remembers who they were. In fact, they have these funny uh, internet things where you try to guess whether someone's still dead or alive. And like... I don't even know. Yeah, they're famous. I mean, I saw one the other day, like Bobby Ewing's still alive. Who knew? I, you know, I, I saw a meme that said, weird, old people are starting to look like me. But time goes by really fast. It's not about that. It's not about money and how much you can accomplish. Ultimately, the only thing that matters moving forward are the lives, the people that you touch, those for whom you make a difference, your family, your friends, your associates, people that you reach out to, people who hear the gospel because of what you've made possible. That's what really matters, and we have to understand this. Life moves on. I was, the other day, my grandson Brandon, who's seven, was with me. We were hiking in the canyon behind our house, and it's kind of sketchy, and we, there were some big, huge mountain lion footprints. And so I got a big stick, and he's like, Papa, maybe I should carry the stick. I play baseball. <laughs> like, I think I still have a better swing than you. But we're down in this canyon where you had to kind of climb up to get back up. And he goes, he asked a very thoughtful question. He goes, Papa, if you die, do I know how to get back? <laughs> And I go, yeah, see the houses up on the hill. Remember, you go up by those houses and go up to the culvert and fall. He goes, oh, yeah, good. <laughs> he was fine. As long as he knew where to go after I died, he was fine. That is legacy. Let people know where to go and how to get home after you die. I mean, and that's really what God was offering. And he fulfilled it completely. We, um, in light of this, on the Thanksgiving Eve service, I looked at Ezra chapter 3 where they were rebuilding the temple once again after it had been destroyed. And they just had the foundation laid and they had this huge Thanksgiving service. And half the people there were crying because they're like, this temple is going to be cheesy. It's not going to be as cool as the last one. These sentimentality always does that. It destroys everything that God's doing. If you live your life looking backwards, glamorizing the past, twisting it, lying about it, that's always a dud. But then the young people were looking at it and going, imagine what can be built on this foundation. And ultimately, God's response in Haggai was, 
Actually, this temple is going to exceed the glory of the last one because ultimately, he said, peace will be there. Ultimately, it's this temple that the parents of Jesus are going to bring him there to be dedicated. And so true with our lives as well. Like, what do we do that has the potential of creating legacy? Legacy is really the only reason to live. It really is. And legacy contains opportunities all around us where we can send a message to the future. And I pray that we will all be aware of that and we will all understand the blessing that it is to be alive right now and to be able to influence what happens next. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this story, for letting us know, get this perspective. And we know that for all of us, We are the legacy of David, of Jesus, of others who faithfully, family members and loved ones and friends and churches that communicated the truth to us. And here we are. And we don't want to break the chain. We want to be those who continue to pay it forward by doing everything that we can do to send a message to the future. And thank you for giving us the opportunity that maybe today we might be able to do something that affects eternity. That there may be things we do this week or this month before the end of the year. People may end up being in heaven because of us. That's amazing. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.